This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This podcast is committed to the stories of innovative, creative, and imaginative educators and education leaders across the Hawaiian Islands. Our goal is a thousand points of light, and with 24,000 downloads to date, we are well on our way. Speaking of a thousand points of light, my guest today is Dr. Kara Chaudron, a math enthusiast born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. Dr. Chaudron is one of the faculty at the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, known as SEEKS, a public charter school near and dear to my heart. I've done two previous episodes with seekers, including faculty member Zoe Ingram and school founder Buffy Cushman-Pates. Dr. Chaudron earned her BA at Vassar College, where she double majored in education and psychology with a minor in French and Francophone studies. She earned her Master of Arts in Teaching at Brandeis University, where she also became licensed as a teacher of students with moderate disabilities. She recently earned her doctorate in education from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where she used her dissertation to learn about the experiences and reflections of Sikhs alumni. Dr. Chaudron leads a student-centered, inquiry-based classroom that allows students to grow in their understanding and love of sixth grade math. She takes on many leadership roles at Sikhs, and her value to her school is immeasurable. The 2021-2022 school year marks Dr. Chaudron's seventh year as part of the Sikhs community, where she gets to work with teachers and students who share her love of learning, desire for sustainable living, and passion for inquiry and exploration. Moreover, and this is the frosting on the cake, Dr. Chaudron was recently named the 2022 Hawaii Charter School Teacher of the Year. She follows in the footsteps of other Sikhs teachers who received this award in 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020, and is deeply worthy of the honor. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Kara Chaudron. Kara, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to share the first couple of sentences you wrote in the acknowledgments that begin your doctoral dissertation. You wrote, and I quote, First and foremost, thank you to my parents for making learning and teaching a seamless part of my childhood. Your hard work and dedication to your fields was as apparent as the joy that flowed through the countless gatherings of colleagues turned friends. So my question actually is more of a prompt. Um, Kata, tell us, tell our listeners a bit about your parents. Like, what are their names, and how did they make teaching and learning a seamless part of your childhood? What a beautiful question. My mother's name is Lucia Aranda, Dr. Aranda. She's a professor at the University of Hawaii, and she teaches Spanish, English translation, and Spanish. And my father's name was Craig Chaudron, uh, Dr. Chaudron, the original, and he. <laughs> taught linguistics at the University of Hawaii mm -hmm. and has since passed away. He passed away when I was a freshman in high school. So mm -hmm. his impact has stayed with me, of course, mm -hmm. every single day. But they, you know, I was raised in a house where we got to take books with us everywhere we went. They were always around us. Books and learning were exciting 
every time we asked why as a child, there was always an answer and a follow-up answer to the next why question. Mm. We were just surrounded by our, our family's work. Work was, we went with them to UH. We had their graduate students over all the time. I got to see the fun that could be had in the community of learners who support each other. I don't think I realized until years later that my dad was one of the professors of the many people who came to hang out because it was just, I mean, professor and colleague, it was just such a fun environment. Mm. And our house was always full of, of learners. I have distinct memories of my father in the middle of dinner, uh, running to go get the encyclopedia to look something up because a, a conversation had come up and he wanted to know the answer to a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, there's, I'm kind of at a loss for words because there's so much to say about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my family, we share the same thing. My, my family had a huge love of books and we had a library table in the living room and there was a giant dictionary on that table. And uh, we we're a family of nine. And when we sat down to dinner, if a, if a word came up in a conversation and somebody would say, well, I don't know what that word means, my father would go, go to the dictionary. And somebody <laughs> would have to run across the room and carry this 12-pound dictionary to the table. And then we would pour over it looking up the definition of that word. So it exactly. just, it sounds like you had a similarly <laughs> rich environment um, when you were growing up. I did. And I, I remember like walking the halls of UH. They both taught in Moore Hall. So it kind of felt like a second home. Mm. And the funnest part was, you know, the community that they had, like whether they were students or colleagues of my parents, I would walk the halls and people knew us and they said hi. And there was just so much joy and support in mm. the whole community that it takes to like run an institution, but also just have a family. It was a, it was a second family. And that was one of the most the things I always remember is just Mm. how supportive the whole um, environment felt. Yeah, that's awesome. So this first set of questions is about your philosophy of education. And in a document you shared with me, you made a distinction between two concepts I think many folks get confused, which is equality versus equity in education. And you wrote, and I quote, I teach because I believe in equity for all students. As a teacher, it is not enough for me to strive to promote equality through my teaching practices. I must ensure that I provide equity. This distinction, although nuanced, is a strong part of my pedagogical practice because of the respect I have for students' individual needs. So, Kara, what is the nuance here? And why is it important for students, parents, even fellow faculty members and peers to know the difference between equality and equity? Yeah, I think this is a really important um, topic, which thankfully, you know, I've learned through my graduate programs and is a, a frequent conversation among my colleagues. So, of course, this is not an original thought of mine. And at its basic level, equality means that everybody gets the same thing and equity means that everybody gets what they need to access things in an, in a fair way. So I've actually had transparent conversations with my students about this where depending on your learning needs and where you're at, either with the content or your process of the, the way that you process your learning, you might need something different to access this topic than a, a different individual in the classroom. And it's up to me not only to recognize that, but also to work to provide it and ultimately to have the students recognize what their needs are and advocate for them. That's the joy of teaching really is is what each student needs from us and being able to give them with through trial and error, <laughs> definitely uh, try to find exactly what it is they need mm. to access their learning. And I love the idea that 
you have these conversations with your students. I don't think that that's intuitive for many educators to have these kinds of transparent conversations about concepts like this with their students. They might be talking about it with their colleagues or they might be thinking about it, but the opportunity to talk to the students and to get their their thoughts on it is, and it sounds like that's an important part of your process. Is that is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Yeah. Oftentimes, um, you know, in a classroom where we have work time, I'll have students raising their hands for a variety of reasons. Um, I try, you know, to let them know, I see you, I'm coming. But if a student comes and asks me a question about the extension task, I will explicitly tell them, hey, I'm actually working with students who haven't yet finished the original task right now. Can you try to find a peer who's also at that place who's already on the extension to answer your question? Because I want to prioritize the students who haven't done the task. And they understand that. They go, oh, yeah, okay. Because I need them to know, you know why I'm taking my time in different places around the classroom, but also help them recognize what's going on around them. Like, mm. you know, give them the empowerment to go to their peers when they see that I'm working on, you know, working with other students first. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the equity, right? That's that's exactly. access. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So for more than a hundred years, students' individual needs were not our society's priority. We often refer to this as the factory model of education. So mm-hmm. Kata, when and why did you place students' individual learning journeys at the center of your philosophy of education? Or was that focus there from the very beginning? You know, um, it's one of those things, I don't even remember how I got here. (laughs) But I definitely have to credit the incredible education I've received throughout my life. I've taken classes about education for as long as I can remember. Since Mm -hmm. I took a child development class in high school and started taking education classes right when I got to college. It had to have started from my own experience receiving different supports. I received supports on both ends because when I was younger, I uh, I was put into you know higher level math opportunities, whether that was just doing work on my own at a desk or being in a higher level math class. But when I got to high school, I started to do really poorly in math. I started to not be able to finish my tests. So I could do the problems, but I was processing things at a much slower rate when it started to get much harder. And I just wasn't finishing the tests. So through a lot of conversations with my family and my teachers, um, I ended up receiving extended time from my teachers deciding, you know, let's try this out. Let's give you two hours, see what you can get done. And let's see if anything happens with your grades. Let's see if you're able to still finish the topic. And I did. I, I started getting the grades I was getting before. And not that it's about grades, but I was able to show my learning just given double the time. And it was definitely a a process for me having to like grapple with a new mindset about my learning and also share with my peers of like, no, I'm not getting like extra time. I'm getting the time I need to do the work that you can do in an hour. I just need two hours. And Mm -hmm. it started my, my advocacy for myself. And that's definitely where it started for my students is that, that experience I've had. Wow. I hope our listeners really hear the point that you're making here about time. It was the same for me. I I always struggled with the amount of time that I was being given to do these kinds of assessments. Um, Mm -hmm. And the more time I had, the more I could actually explain who I was and what I knew and the kinds of things that I could do. So that's, that's very, very cool. So at SEEKS, where you work, student-driven learning is a, is a huge part, if not the core of your school's DNA. If I were walking around campus on a typical day as a visitor, what would I see and hear that demonstrates that value of, of student-driven learning? Wow. Um, 
at the very basic level, you would see teachers listening to students. Mm -hmm. You may see teachers in the quote unquote front of the room at times, but you would see teachers walking around the classroom, Mm -hmm. bending down to students' level, sitting with students. Um, Sometimes you don't even see the teacher when you first walk in because they're sitting at student level with them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of questions. So you know, we're very we're an inquiry based school, where we we honor inquiry based approaches to learning. So there's a lot of moments where we actually pose questions to our students, where we're not giving them an answer, we're asking them to grapple with a question. And I think that's an inherently student driven practice in education because we are modeling the fact that we don't necessarily have all the right answers. Mm-hmm. but we're instead valuing the process of students asking their own questions. And these are big questions. I mean, essential questions as a concept are built to have countless different answers and literally not have one specific answer. And with that model as our foundation for every course, because every course has an essential question that guides that discipline, and we have guiding questions throughout our units, I hope we're showing the students, you know, your thinking and your process is what matters here. Mm -hmm. And that should make you feel empowered to explore your own beliefs and your own Mm -hmm. um, way of understanding things, but also empowered to ask questions and to push back if you hear something that you're like, hey, I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm -hmm. You know, in a previous episode, the first episode of this season, I I spoke with Edna Hussey, who's the elementary school principal at Mid-Pacific Institute. And we had a wonderful conversation about her observations of what she calls the astute teacher who knows when to step back. So that's what you're describing here is an environment that's rich with listening and also that the teacher is not necessarily at the front or even at the center, that there's this astuteness that's in play and the astuteness of stepping back and letting students or giving students the opportunity to explore these essential questions fully and completely. It sounds like that's what I would be seeing, right? Exactly. And also knowing that if there are times when, you know, there's there's times when direct instruction is necessary, mm-hmm. but our philosophy is that we're transparent about that. You know, if I have to stop the class and say something and address all of them, I'll tell them why. Mm. I'll say, you know, I've gotten the same question five times. I may have been unclear. Let me clarify this for you. So I don't shy away from saying, hey, I I have an answer that might help you for Mm. part of the process, but I'm going to be very transparent and tell you why I'm sharing this information with you at this point in the learning process. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. So Seek's executive director on this podcast talked about a very cool equation that has to do with time and values. Um, She noted what a school spends its time on reflects its values. So, Kata, there are only 24 hours in a day, and typically eight of them are spent sleeping, hopefully. So what can we learn about your values through what you spend your time on? Yeah, I I remember the first time I heard that from Buffy, our Mm -hmm. founder and executive director, and it's it's stayed with me since. And Mm -hmm. we talk about it a lot at Seeks, how are we spending our time? And my own time, you know, this is a constant journey for me as a young woman in education and figuring out you know, I've, I've spent the bulk of my time throughout my life as a student, as a learner, whether that means, you know, coming home from work, grading homework, giving feedback to students, and then jumping into my own reading and my own uh, work. And since I finished my doctorate last summer, mm-hmm. that's been a question I've asked myself because I have this new amount of time in my life and I don't want to stop learning. <laughs> right. I'll drive from a place of where I'm, I'm working toward 
I'm really working toward valuing my own mental health and self care, mm-hmm. especially. And when I lose sight of that, I. Uh, my my highest motivation is like how how can I empower my students by modeling what I would hope for them, you know? So I drive from that place of trying to take care of myself. Um, biking to work, I bike to and from work almost every day. Not every day, I'm not perfect, mm-hmm. but that not only gives me a chance to be in the fresh air and be outside, but also you know I'm I'm not driving a car, so I'm trying to be more sustainable, and I'm just getting that time to reflect on my day and process mm-hmm. my day mm-hmm. and literally power myself to work, which is, it's become a much bigger part of my life recently. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Mm. And honestly, I spend a lot of time thinking of plans for lessons, <laughs> thinking of activities for students and honestly putting my ideas and plans into action by like scribbling on a document of what, what I'm a lesson that I might do next year or just another way to organize my systems to be more efficient with feedback. It sounds so nerdy, but really (laughs) (laughs) the truth right now. (laughs) Right. Right. I, I too, you know, was very moved when I first heard that from Buffy. And I, I, sometimes I sit back and realize that every single morning, very early in the morning, I hit the ocean and I swim long distance, you know, off of, off of Kaimana beach. And just like you, you know, riding your bike and other elements of time in your life, that is a time for me. It's about 40 minutes for me to just let my mind go wherever it wants to go. And hopefully I don't run into anybody out there in the ocean um, yeah. as I'm as I'm daydreaming my way through the things that, I, <laughs> that I'm caring about. But it's a very profound thought that she had. And um, so, and I love the idea that you keep connecting back to sort of being a model to your students and that you're transparent with your students. And it's all sort of part and parcel of your philosophy of education, which is where we started these questions, which leads me to the next question, which has to do with social justice. So you say that you teach to perpetuate social justice. So let's say I'm a parent of a student on the waiting list to be at Seeks and and I'm on campus for a visit. What do you mean by teaching to perpetuate social justice? And why do you want me, the parent, to know this, assuming that you do want me to to know this? Yeah, absolutely. This comes from a place of, you know, I've always loved learning. I've been very lucky to have really strong teachers, both in public and private schools. And I also have had to grapple with, not grapple, but just accept the privilege that I've had throughout my life growing up in a house with professors as parents and having opportunities open to me. And all I can do is take that privilege and and use it to teach my students things that I think I wish I had known earlier. Mm. Um, And just to be aware of them, be aware of the world around them, be aware of their position in their communities and be aware of what they can do with that or what they, how they can advocate for themselves, each other, their own community, different communities, you know, sounds very lofty. And I don't mean to say that I'm doing this perfectly, but Mm -hmm. really I, I believe in this from, because it's what's best for society, you know, if we look at society, there's so many things. I'm like, I wish we could all just share this. I wish we could all be in a place where we can move forward with, without so much fighting was the wrong word. Tension. So tension. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. But there's so much inherent in that, that I, I just think we need to, we need to start early teaching our students to recognize what's going on around them and their position within it. And not to put the weight of the world on their shoulders, but just to let them have a chance to see and start treating each other in ways that address some of these inherent inequities in our 
society, communities in our world. Because I, I wish I had been explicitly empowered with that earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the only way we can move forward sustainably, both in every meaning of that word. Mm. You know, you also wrote, I teach because students' minds are the ones that can shape the world for the better. And I found your choice of words super interesting. You didn't say students are the ones that shape the world. You said students' minds are the ones that shape the world. So maybe this is a silly question. Is is this a difference without a distinction? You seem to be focusing on their minds. Why? That's interesting. When I hear that now, because I wrote that quite a few years ago, I mm-hmm. process it in this way where we often at Seeks have to deal with the fact that we're giving students these uh, lofty essential questions and asking them to address them. But the reality is that there's a lot that's not within their locus of control. They are adolescents who do not pay their own bills and cannot drive themselves places and, <laughs> and don't, literally cannot vote um, yet. So there is a reality. Students you know, are at least, at least at the middle school age, are faced with this reality where they they literally are not able to make change in certain ways because of, you know, just society's rules around all of that. But their minds, you know, are not limited in that way. Mm. I've had so many conversations with students where I'm like, oh my God, I would vote you into leadership now. Oh, you know? I've had those too. Yes. Absolutely. And that's how I hear that distinction today. Mm. I'm also often jealous of their lack of jadedness. They it make they make sense, you know, they they see their communities and because they do have a more insular view of the world, I think that helps them mm. in a lot of ways to recognize that solutions are very possible if we all just, you know, played along mm. <laughs> and collaborated. And so that's how I understand that question from mm. my experience now. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. And so one more question and then we'll take a break. And these questions have all been kind of focused on your philosophy of education. You wrote, I teach because I love to learn. You wrote this when you were a third grade teacher in Cambridge, Massachusetts, some years ago. To what extent, Kata, has this relationship between teaching and love of learning changed or deepened or become more nuanced in your life? Well, in in a really positive way, it's been fostered even more because one of Seeks' philosophies of learning is that everybody is a teacher and everybody is a learner all of the time. And so I've found a school that allows me to, you know, be very clear about that, like be very open with my students and really it celebrates the fact that teachers are students also and students can be our teachers. And honestly, teaching students for so many years and so many different courses I've just gotten to interact with more and more students who know so much more about things than I do. Mm-hmm. And there's no pressure from anybody to hide that or to prove that I I do have the answers. I've been allowed over the past several years to engage with students like, oh, tell me more. I, I actually don't know about this. So can you be my teacher in this moment? And mm-hmm. I want to be a learner. And I've also taken what I have learned as a graduate student for several years and you know, what did I not like about my classes? What did I love about the classes I was in as a student? How did I balance my homework and my the rest of my day? And I've tried to take those lessons from being a student and apply them as a teacher so that I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. I'm using, yeah, what, what I loved and what I didn't love about my own learning experiences to foster those of my students. Mm, which takes us back to Buffy's thought about time and values, right? And you're having that transparent conversation with your students, which is wonderful. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're at Seeks because that means that you're within a faculty that really jives with who you are and what you want to be in terms of teaching as a learner and learning as a teacher. 
That's that's really awesome. So, hey everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we'll come back with more questions for Kara Chadron. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the Entre Ed Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Kara Chadron, our 2022 Charter School Teacher of the Year and a faculty member at SEEKS. So Kara, these next set of questions focus on your teaching practice. Um, you provided me with lesson plans you wrote while getting your first graduate degree at Brandeis. Um, you were teaching third grade, as I previously noted, and I went through these lesson plans for math, differentiated reading, understanding the Declaration of Independence, and the life of Phyllis Wheatley, and, and much more. So my question has to do with relevance. You might want me, young Josh Rapoon at Ben Parker Elementary in Kaneohe, to understand and know how to measure the area of a shape or how one gains independence. But how do you guide me towards relevance? Like, how do you help me care about either of these things? That's a great question that I feel like I ask myself very regularly as a teacher in any class that I'm teaching, you know, why, why does this matter? Because they will ask you, why does this matter? Why are we learning this? Right. By looking around us is, is my simplest answer. So with math, it's easy to say, oh, it's, it's all around us, but I, I really try my best. And this is always a work in progress for me, but let's look around the classroom. Mm -hmm. What do we see around us? Most common one is tiles on the floor where students quickly see those shapes and see how they fit together. And, and why would it matter that, that the tiles on the floor have a certain you know, geometric shape that we can understand? Or why, why does it matter to know how to measure the area of the room, for example? Mm. And at the third grade level and at the sixth grade level as well, it's a matter of like, well, what can we do with that information? Mm. Because all of this, by this, I mean, all of the, the lessons that we learn are really just more in tools in our toolbox as they are for me. Same for students at, at any age, anything we learn is just another tool in our toolbox to eventually tackle a problem or just a situation in our life that we, you know, we just have more options to address it if we have more tools in our toolbox. So mm. if we wanted to change something about the space that we're in, first, we need to understand the space that we're in. We need to understand how much butcher paper do we need if we want to cover this wall in a different color mm. or how many tiles would it take to retile the floor? Not that young students are thinking about retiling the floor, but they think about like fun carpet choices potentially or ways to paint the walls of their room or just to reconfigure their spaces. We, I teach a floor plan project where students design their own floor plans for spaces in mm -hmm. sixth grade. And one of the most common realizations they have is how much room a bed takes up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. That's actually, you know, a really big area. So even if they're twin beds. So 
a, a bed and a toilet and a shower. You know, if we want to make changes with the way our room is configured, we have to know what space we have available to work with. Mm. And getting back to what you were saying about relevance, yeah, it's finding the little moments. I actually remember when I taught that lesson about independence in that third grade classroom as a first year teacher, mm. I had a student lead a lead a strike in the name of independence. Wow. <laughs> it resulted in a march around the room and a declaration of their own independence from having to engage in something about the work. And it was a really lovely moment where it required me to not only, you know, address the student where they were at, but also recognize, yes, absolutely, even at your young age, you can fight for things that you want that are within your control. Wow. You know, that that's so remarkable because I taught APUS history at the high school level. And at the time that I was teaching at La Pietra, and you know that APUS and all of these AP courses are really a grind. They're a terrible grind. And you have to cover, mm-hmm. you know, 40 miles and, and you can only go an inch deep on the whole thing. And there was mm-hmm. this moment, I had these big windows on the side of the classroom there was this moment where there was a really, really big test coming up and nobody showed up. None of my students showed up for the test. And at some point I was wondering what was going on and I looked out the window and they were all standing outside the classroom and one of them stepped forward with a document in her hand, a piece of paper. It was actually a big piece of parchment paper. And she handed it through the window and it was the Declaration of Independence rewritten for the moment. It was basically... You know, setting the pathway forward for independence from Josh Rapoon, the tyrant teacher. And (laughs) they'd all signed it. And there was even the John Hancock signature, the giant signature one student had put it at the top. And I ended up framing that. And it's actually here in my little podcast studio. It's one of the most treasured things that that I have. And I also remember that at some point I told them, look, your grades are really going to go down. And that killed the rebellion right there. Um, you know, so these these <laughs> moments are rich in memory, and and that's that's really special because of the way that you're thinking about this as you move forward as an educator. That's a that's one of the that's a great story. That's really a great story. Yeah, it, I love your story. Also, I think it's it would be such a mistake to see these moments as teachers and squash them and be like, oh, but you're not doing the assignment. When in fact, by behaving in this way, they are not only processing the assignment or the the topic at least but enacting it in a such a more powerful way than it would be to you know write a paper or mm. or f- complete a worksheet or whatever it may be there I really try to hold on to to capturing that and realizing that pausing in the moment like what are they telling me through this behavior yeah. they're actually telling me that they heard me mm-hmm. and that they really are testing it out in their own life and I think that that is the most beautiful part of mm moments like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I actually went out and framed that almost immediately and I put it up in the classroom and then then we all owned it. We owned the moment together, you know. So that beautiful. was that was really cool. So, let's say that you have a kid at Seeks who clearly loves social studies, history, storytelling, reading and writing. She has no visible interest in math. Why and, and this is sort of a meta question, like why keep guiding, mentoring, and coaching her towards a set of math skills? Like what is the argument for developing math skills and understanding math? And I, I, I asked this question, Cutter, kind of in the context of a zillion 
department meetings I sat through where everybody argued about what kids needed to know as if it was a pie. And if you took part of the pie, then somebody else got less of the pie. You mm-hmm. know? So uh, what is that about for you? It comes back to filling their toolbox and creating opportunities for them to be fluent and successful in their everyday life. So if I had a, you know, when I'm faced with students who are just really not feeling what either the topic or that we're currently working on or math as a whole, I try to talk with them and actually all students about, you know, the reality is that you don't necessarily need to remember greatest common factor in adulthood because you can Google it. That is true. But what I often tell them is that a calculator is only as useful as the person using it. Mm. Because if you don't understand the logic, the, the logic behind the way numbers are fitting together and the relationship between those numbers, you can't, you're not going to know what to look up. You're not going to know how to use the incredible like technological tools we have today. So I, I really, I, I, I try to make them recognize that, you know, okay, so you didn't do so great on this one test. That's okay, but I really want them to take away the importance of just having fluency in recognizing the way numbers work and the logic behind relationships between numbers because they're going to have to make purchases. They're going to have to set budgets. They're going to have to invest their money ideally at some point or make decisions about going, unfortunately, going into debt to pursue education if that's something that they want. But Mm. wanting to empower them with a toolbox full of like, the basic way that that numbers can work together and what it means to make a decision that has anything to do with numbers in their life mm-hmm. is hopefully the place where they can find empowerment to continue getting more fluent. Mm-hmm. Me and my teachers often share with the students, you know, like the analogy with just working out our brains in terms of if a bodybuilder or a pro soccer player or a pro football player were to say, oh, I don't need to work out. I'm already super fit. I'm already at the top of my profession. Mm. They would lose that position very quickly. So mm. we often make that analogy with math of we're really trying to keep our brains active and, and really work out our brains to keep ourselves warmed up and fluent in, in just being in basic problem solving so that mm. when it does come time to solve a problem in our own life, we, we, our muscles are warmed up. We do have the basic understanding that we need to tackle the problems that matter to us. Mm. You know, I was going to ask you a question about sort of an extension of the last question about moving just from math skills to actually loving math. But let me preface it with a quick story. You know, I hated math, unfortunately, as, as a child, mm-hmm. as a middle school kid, as a high school kid, and as a college student. And maybe the most important math moment of my my life was when I was in college at the University of Oregon, and I got a memo from my father. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but you know, it was literally a memo to Josh Rapoon from Dr. Fred Rapoon. And he was pointing out in the memo, very brief text of the memo, that I was spending my $240 for the whole year allowance a little bit too quickly. And I realized... <laughs> kind of in that moment, what sort of that slide bar, that slide ruler really was, right? I was realizing the extent to which $20 on, you know, a trip to, you know, Portland to go play rugby or something like that had consequences. And so I really hear what you're saying about about helping kids to 
you know, to understand how math is everywhere in life. And that's something I really didn't get. So I, I guess I want to ask a little bit more about how we help kids love math, even more than just the skills that you actually come to really appreciate and perhaps even fall in love with it. Yes, I am still asking myself this <laughs> almost every day. It comes back to safety and security for me within mm-hmm. the classroom. So if I can create a safe classroom space where it's okay to make mistakes and they're not scared to show up and they're not scared if they didn't do their homework and they feel comfortable telling me that they have a question or that they totally don't know what's going on, that's where it starts. Because if I can be the person that they can they feel like there won't be any judgment or misplaced frustration or anger towards them if they don't understand something right away. Mm-hmm. Then they're starting from a basic level of, okay, it's okay for me to be here wherever I'm at. If I didn't do my homework and if I don't get it and if I don't love this, she's going to accept me and that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And from there, we can have conversations because in reality, not everybody's going to love math. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But if they recognize that that one, it is going to be important at some point in their life. And that two, they eventually can figure out a problem. They have the skills to eventually figure out a problem regardless of how insecure they might feel about their math abilities. Then that opens so many doors for them. And I'm okay with that. I don't need every child to love math. I need them to love coming to math class, which I think is really and I need them to understand the word like yet. I don't get this yet, or I'm not good at this yet. And some stuff might always be hard for them, especially with folks who have different learning abilities and literally their brain does not see them num- or it switches numbers around on the paper. Like that's always going to um, be a challenge for some folks. And I don't mean to diminish those challenges, but if they can understand that like, yeah, that their math teacher, Dr. Chadron hated math at one point and was getting failing it and didn't think that she could do it, then then they can they can get past that as well. Mm. So, and this is the, the last question in this section about your practice. Speaking of wanting to come to math class, but maybe not necessarily yet loving math. And I'm not I'm now just right back in my childhood and thinking, you know, wishing that I had had you all the way through as a math as my math teacher. I want to talk about demos and it, and its first specifically its first global math art contest, which featured over four thousand graphs and images from over a hundred countries around the world. When you shared this with me, I was blown away. Um, and so, what is demos, Kata, and why is it one of your educator tools? And you know, just regarding the demos global math art contest. Why is something like this such a powerful way to learn? Or why might it be the magnet that brings me to math class? Yeah, so it's actually Desmos. and oh, um, Desmos, okay. Yeah, yeah. I learned about this through a math conference that I went to, if I'm remembering that that was the first time. You know, it's one of those, mm-hmm. where, where was the origin? I love Desmos because it is built with the concept that students having an easy access point to enter the activity or the lesson is crucial Mm. for their like further engagement in it. So any Desmos activities, there's a lot of things you can do with Desmos. It has a graphing calculator option, which I use in my algebra class, but it has so many teacher and teacher created lessons where, sorry, they're actually more activities where students can go through a series of like five to 10 different windows that build on each other. 
And the main point is that they're interactive. So what I love about it is everything starts with an easy access point of like, press mm-hmm. this button and see what happens to the line mm-hmm. or drag this number into the space. And that's the first step. Like you don't have to know any math to do the first window. You could, it's just an interactive, like click the button, see what happens. Mm-hmm. Go to the next window. And everything builds off of that initial interaction that they had. So the reason I use Desmo so much is because because it's so beautifully built to allow for an easy access point and just super risk-friendly. Students can make mistakes, take risks with whatever activity they're doing. And all they have to do is go back a window or click retry to try the activity again. So there's, there's literally no downside to guessing and checking and trying again. And it, in, from my perspective, it really promotes this like just resilience to like, okay, well, if I have no idea what this assignment is about, I could even click and try and delete and try again and just see what happens. And I could even learn from just my own trial and error. And if I'm loving this and I do understand how it works, it allows the students to have an interactive and like visual-based way to access Mm. the the work but also extension opportunities i just think it's mm. a beautiful digital playground mm. to see how math concepts play out and to explore them and i i use it so much because it allows students to just play with mm. a really like low risk way mm. and on the logistics side of it it has a really great teacher dashboard where you can actually track all your students what window they're at what they've gotten correct what they've gotten wrong and you can pause their screens. It's just really teacher and student friendly. Mm. Wow, that sounds so interesting. You know, when I when I went into the art contest part and I was looking at these beautiful images and just by accident, I clicked on one and all of a sudden a math equation showed up and I was like, what? Wow, this is amazing. And you know, what's so cool about this, you know, our conversation today is you're bringing up so many memories for me. When I was teaching again at La Pietra and I was teaching European history, and I was one of the maybe one of the first teachers to be using what was called at the time a threaded conversation, but it's really a blog where you could you know respond via the comment section. And mm-hmm. I remember one of the questions that I asked, and it was during the period of the Enlightenment during European history. So I asked this question. I put the quadratic equation up as the prompt, and I said, "It seems like this is evidence of the existence of God." And wow, that conversation blew up, and it went on for weeks as the students sort of argued this out. And ultimately, I got called in by administration and read the Riot Act (laughs) because the kids weren't doing their regular math worksheets. They were actually spending all their time in this blog. So, you know, it's just, it's just, I, what I love about what you're saying is that it's all about access. It's all about equity. It means that if you open the door and invite me in, you give me the opportunity to figure out what I think about whatever it is, if it's math or whatever the subject is or the topic or the question or anything, it's that invitation to come inquire that's really the important part, right? Absolutely. And as you were saying that, it takes me back to that's exactly what my parents set up for us in Mm. the environment that we grew up in. And that's why I am the way I am, is just being invited to inquire and having that safe space to play with our learning is where it begins yeah. and yeah it, that that conversation sounds so cool <laughs> and I, I love the desmos art contest is another example of that it, in this time when you know especially i think it started in the, the in the pandemic where people from all over the world could play with this 
really cool, really easy to use digital math grapher and create the most incredible drawings, which as I was looking through them, there's no way I could create those myself. Mm -hmm. That's an example of, you know, students' minds being so um, capable of creating change. Like given the tool and given this easy access point, this entry point, they created some incredible art that just speaks to um, how ready students are to explore their own learning and explore their own ideas when given the safe space and um, and the access. Yeah, which brings us back to what we were talking about earlier about equality and equity, right? It circles right back to that idea. Absolutely. So everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we'll come back with more questions for Kata Chatran. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Kara Chaudron, a faculty member at the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability. So Kara, in these last set of questions, which are more kind of meta 10,000 foot level, I want to ask about your doctoral dissertation, which explored the question, how can we learn from students' stories to impact the growth and development of our school? I love that question. So you were inspired to investigate this because you have stayed connected with many of your school's alumni and you noticed patterns in the stories they told you about their transitions to high school. So what are those patterns? And what did you learn about what's happening to Sikh students after they moved on from middle school to high school? Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because I love our students so much. And I love when I can stay in touch with them after they leave. Yeah, me too. They recognize that Sikhs prepared them for life, but not necessarily to navigate a giant typical high school environment. Right. So what I found after, and I interviewed, gave surveys to 12 students. It's a small, it's a small sampling and, you know, was also informed by just casual conversations throughout all of the years of having students come back to visit us, having siblings of our alumni at SEEKS and staying in touch with them in that way. And what they shared with me was that they were so prepared for things like presentations and collaboration and group projects and long-term projects, because that was just inherent in everything they did at SEEKS. Mm. I had so many students comment on like, oh, we had to give a two-minute presentation and my classmates were scared. And I was like, oh, this is two minutes. That's nothing. I can do this in my sleep. Like mm-hmm. exude confidence around collaboration and presentation and skills like that, that we build into the SEEKS model. And because we don't teach to the test and we don't have like really long note-taking sessions or tests that require like extremely long study sessions at SEEKS. And instead we have projects and papers and, and group discussions. That is one of the places where students were feeling like there's a disconnect between what SEEKS prepared them for and what they were asked to do in their mm. high school environment. But when you think about it, that's one of the prices that educators have to grapple with when trying to not just educators, anybody trying to change something needs to recognize that they're going to be existing within a community of people or within a community of people 
continuing the traditional path. So you're, it's a constant question of, okay, do I keep fighting for what I believe is, is right and the right way to do things for learners or, you know, at, at the expense of not preparing people possibly for the system with which they're going to enter because it's stemming from the belief of like, but this is the way things should be. Mm. So I don't know if I'm being clear with that, but yeah, they felt that. They felt that they were prepared for life and not necessarily prepared for a traditional school system. However, they did recognize one of the beautiful things that they shared was that their relationships with teachers was one of the most pivotal parts of their school experience. Mm. Whether that meant strong relationships with teachers at SEEKS or the lack of strong relationships with teachers or even continued strong relationships with teachers in their new school environments. That was the first finding that I present in the dissertation because it's such a, a valuable one that, that those relationships with teachers mm-hmm. were spoken about in a way that really showed that they were a pivotal part of the students' experience throughout their education in whatever space they were in. Mm. So, you know, this question focused on what you heard from your students, but I kind of want to, maybe it's redundant, but I want to flip it and come back to you. You know, when that moment comes, Kara, and your students leave Seeks for high school, What's on your mind? What What are you feeling in your heart? It's a beautiful question because one of the things I feel most strongly is I hope they know that I meant everything I said. Oh, wow. So I hope they know that I meant it when I said, I believe in you. I'm always here for you. Please come back and visit. We will miss you. You know, I say those things so often, but I really do believe them. I, I think, I mean, it's one of the reasons I love being a teacher because I love children and students and getting to form those relationships. And it's so hard. You have them for three years and it's my favorite, favorite part of being a middle school teacher is watching that sixth to eighth grade incredible growth that they make. Right. And when they leave, you feel like they're part of your, you know, your extended, extended family because every mm-hmm. year it gets bigger. And I hope that they don't lose because in eighth grade, they leave us and they're starting, you know, they're really deep in adolescence and they're really becoming get coming into their own. And I hope so deeply that they hold on to the things that are beautiful about their curiosity and their comfort with themselves and don't lose sight of those mm. along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. And and all of us who know Seeks, we're crossing our fingers and and you know, understanding how intentional Seeks is being about being able to expand its charter to become a high school as well. And I, I know that's something that's on your all of your collective minds. And and I I hope that happens. But still at the same time, you will have students who are going to go on to other high schools. And that relationship that they have with you and the other faculty members and the confidence that they feel which you experienced in your interviews with them, that's just absolutely critical for, you know, what helps them to be most likely to succeed, right? Definitely. And I, I want to say there's incredible high schools on this island, public, private, charter. And mm-hmm. I don't mean to say in anything I share that that's not the case. I just, I'm I'm so excited for the potential of Seeks High School first and foremost. Right. But I, I really do think that one of the things that Seeks prepares in our students is this ability to self-reflect and recognize what's within themselves and how they can be in charge of their learning. Yeah. How reflection and building those relationships with teachers that they need and advocating for themselves and creating little communities of people that can support them. They they have the agency to do all of that no matter what environment they end up in. So yeah. I'm 
instilling that that comfort with question with asking questions and the comfort with being in spaces where they feel empowered can help them succeed no matter where they go. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. So, Kara, one more question um, before we finish today. And, and I hope that this question gets at something that I think I know you really care about a lot. As part of the Teacher of the Year application, you were asked, and I quote, what do you consider to be a major public education issue today? And so first, I was completely stoked that they asked you this question. And second, your response opened the door to another question, totally related, that I want to ask. You're, you are team teaching what's called an EQ course at SEEKS, an essential question course that students elect into, focused on identity, sexuality, and other related concepts. So what is this course about, and how does it represent a major public education issue today? Yeah, my response to that major public education issue today was safety. Mm -hmm. Students are facing threats to their safety in a variety of ways in schools throughout the country in terms of potentials for gun violence, racism, discrimination, bullying because of just different gender identity, sexuality, race, any anything like that. That's I feel like we can't students can't be asked to tackle the problems of today without first feeling safe in the schools that they're in. So this course that I'm teaching now, this EQS course about identity, is just something I've been wanting to do for so many years. And I'm so excited to have the opportunity to do it this year as an EQS course. The essential question that we're tackling is what is the role of reciprocity within a community? And we're tackling that from the perspective of interpersonal reciprocity and what it means to engage with people around us in a way that honors our differences, honors our diversity, and is potentially uncomfortable, but eventually promotes safety among the community. So what we're doing in this class is asking students to recognize all the parts of their identity that make them who they are. We are teaching them about intersectionality and and teaching them about different parts of other people's identities they might not be aware of yet and asking them to create spaces or, or we're trying to create the space where our students have the opportunity to have these important conversations in a safe environment where they actually see that you can have a community of people who support each other and help each other feel safe as learners that don't all believe the same things, that don't all feel the same way. And in creating a classroom space where this is okay and where this is not only okay, but the norm, where we come to class, we have deep discussions about who we are, what our bodies are going through, what adolescence means. And we share our variety of experiences in a respectful way. I think that's my job to create this classroom and as a, as a beacon of safety for these students mm. with all the other things going on. They not only see myself and my co-teacher, Mr. Denbart, as who's helped co-create this course, huge shout out to him. They not only can see us as these beacons of safety of like, wow, these teachers want to hear us, want to give us the space to talk about what we're going through, but they eventually become the beacons of safety themselves, hopefully for other students in their community because of this comfort that they are able to build around having these important conversations that could be uncomfortable for other folk, but hopefully um, they can be comfortable with that discomfort. Mm. Wow, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, as I reflect back on my middle and high school years and that, you know, courses that may have even tried to touch on those kinds of themes 
were very difficult for people and certainly didn't help me. And so, you know, once again, as often happens in these interviews for this podcast, Kara, I'm wishing I was back in school again and wishing that I could go through this EQS course with you and your co-teacher. Thank you for that shout out to him and also with your other students. So, you know, this this conversation today is absolutely going to go down as the best hour of my week. And I appreciate you and I appreciate all you're doing at Seeks. And I wish you and your family safety and good health. And thank you for being part of this podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. I could talk about education. <laughs> all day long. Every day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. That's awesome. Thank you, Kata. Thank you. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is Evan Kurohara. Our original theme music is provided by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. He has produced 12 albums with over 100 songs and is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the other major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline here in Hawaii, stay safe, wear a mask in public places, stay physically distant from one another, and for the love of the gods, get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.